Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 3. The Great Divorce, Chapter 2. The Bus Ride in the Clouds. Friends, welcome back to the Pints with Jack weekly podcast, where David and I have the distinct privilege of enjoying a drink together, unpacking the writings of C.S. Lewis, discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity, and most importantly, sharing this journey with you all. We're currently in season two, in unlocking the treasures hidden within our favorite C.S. Lewis work, The Great Divorce. My name is Matt, and I'm joined by David, a man who I would happily sit next to on the bus to heaven, at least for a couple hours. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the feeling's mutual. (laughs) (laughs) Although hopefully by then I will have developed the virtue of patience to a greater degree. This week we, uh, well, we are not drinking, I am drinking the Glenmorangie La Santa, which is going to be delicious. Uh, Matt, would you mind explaining to the (laughs) listeners why you are not drinking the La Santa as well? So I was in, <laughs> so I was in Michigan over Christmas break and was there for an extended period. And so I rented out my apartment in New York to Airbnb. And just today I was ready to pull out my Glen Morangi. And as I'm bowling it out, every single one of them is empty. So clearly I think my person overhelped himself a little bit to some of my alcoholic beverages. That is so bad. <laughs> it is. But he was such this is, a, why, this is why I hide my drink. <laughs> he was such a nice bloke, though. I mean, we, we did chat on the phone when he got here, and I answered a few questions. So I, there's a part of me that's like, you know, I'm glad. You, I hope you had a good time with it. <laughs> so so today, all that's to say is Matt's going to be drinking some tea. And I didn't feel the urge to go out and get more because I'm going to be starting a program for the next few months where I won't be having any alcohol unless the group I'm with decides to allow us to have it back for one day. And so I'm like, well, there's no point buying new alcohol right now, so it's going to be tea for Matt. I still somewhat approve. <laughs> it is. It, you, ah, I didn't think about that. You would. Lewis, more importantly, would approve. Mm, I think he'd approve of me more, but anyway. <laughs> uh, the quote of the week is from the words of Napoleon in this chapter. It was Salt's fault. It was Ney's fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English. I very much appreciate as you went through that, you started to bring your Scottish accent. It started more British and then it ended Scottish. That's not Scottish. It's Napoleon was, wasn't That started what it sounded like. It was the fault of the English. No, I would be saying it in a French accent. It was Salt's fault. It was Ney's fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English. <laughs> that actually stopped, started French and sounded Russian by the end of it. <laughs> Oh, good grief. All right. Cheers. Just drink your tea. (laughs) Cheers. In fairness, I'm the last person that should be. I am terrible with any sort of language and accent, so I should be judging this. Uh, Before we get into this episode, some updates here real quick. The first one is we've released another video, so we want to keep reminding our listeners to go to our Pints with Jack YouTube channel and subscribe to it. Make sure you don't miss any of the videos as we release them. Now, as, if, as this podcast is released, we'll probably be a video or two beyond this, but the one that we released as we're recording this is the hardest thing you will ever do, which is a really cool video. I like it. 
I thought I, I like rewatching them, and I thought so. First of all, for the listeners, if you're watching it, get past the first few minutes. The first few minutes are great, but then we, after like minute three, I'm like, wow, this is starting to get into some good stuff. <laughs> Even if you do say so, yourself. <laughs> I say so myself. I'm trying to say our first stuff wasn't quite as good. Like maybe if I wasn't watching myself, I wouldn't have been quite so hooked. <laughs> Well, you also shared with me some shocking news this week. We got a dislike on one of our videos. We have two now. Two! <laughs> and I, I, I sent David a text trying to figure out why. That's a very frustrating part about YouTube. You don't get the why. <laughs> I think it's just because they were jealous of our good looks. <laughs> I never even thought to tell myself that. Let's stick with that one. <laughs> this is the difference between the two of us. Uh, But in happy news, this past week, I discovered that our podcast was featured on the December newsletter of the C.S. Lewis Foundation. How cool is that? That is incredible. Yeah, it was the episode where I was talking about my visit to the kilns. And also in shiny happy news, Darren's book arrived. So listeners, uh, a chap called Darren Scott Jacobs commented on, I think it was our first video, and he said he wanted to send us a C.S. Lewis first edition. So I am actually now holding in my hands a first edition of The Great Divorce. He included this really lovely note with it. David and Matt, may your many conversations be as strong and robust as the single malt before you. Further up and further in. Darren. That is really cool, though. <laughs> you know, first we should say just from the bottom of our hearts, if Darren is listening to this, thank you. I mean, that, that is just so incredibly kind for him to send that. I mean, that's a great gift. I know I'm weird, but the first thing I did when I got it, I opened it up and smelt the book. <laughs> it smelt like my grandparents' house. Or actually even, it smelt like the kilns. That, that kind of old grandparent kind of smell. I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. And there's also a picture of Lewis in the back of it. I'll put it on Instagram. And it's a picture of him I'd never seen before. But I think we should toast him. And you do insult Darren by toasting with tea, but that's okay. Uh, to Darren. <laughs> to Darren. Speaking of friends of the show, outside of Darren, I love that some of my friends who listen to this now keep associating me with C.S. Lewis. So one of my friends sent me uh, this article on C.S. Lewis or using C.S. Lewis to talk about New Year's resolutions. Nice. And I love now that my friends do that. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of friends knowing you, I went to a New Year's party and even before I got my coat off, someone called out to me that there was some Macallan 12 in the kitchen. And even as I was going to the kitchen to get it, I passed another friend who went, oh, David, you know, there's some Macallan 12 in the kitchen. So I think talking about scotch uh, and fine beverages every episode, people have also started to associate me with that. We need to get some other associations in here. I could... Nope. Scotch and C.S. Lewis. I'm good. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Just before we get on with this episode, uh, last episode, we spoke about the seven deadly sins. And... Since last week, I actually came across a letter which Lewis wrote to his good friend Arthur Greaves. He wrote this in about 1930, and Arthur had said that his chief sin was sloth, laziness, and Lewis, pride. Here's what Lewis wrote. I was thinking of the old classification of the seven deadly sins. Sloth is a kind of indolence which comes from indifference to the good. The mood in which, though it tries to play on us, we have no string to respond. Pride, on the other hand, is the mother of all sins, and the original sin of Lucifer. So you are rather better off than I am. You, at worst, are an instrument unstrung. I am an instrument strung, but preferring to play music itself, because it thinks it knows the tune better than the musician. 
That last part is brilliant. It's that final line, exactly. Wow. I didn't read through any stuff that you pre-wrote for this, so that's, that's incredible. And I think it plays in nicely with the theme of the great divorce and pride, which we're going to see over again and again and again. Well, I've been looking forward to your 150-word summary. <laughs> yes, people typically are. Well, second to the haiku, of course. Now, people are really excited about that, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. So here's the 150-word summary of today's chapter. The tousle-headed poet explains to Lewis how, on Earth, everyone failed to recognize his genius. He is convinced that, at their destination, he will receive his deserved recognition. Lewis meets an intelligent man in a bowler hat, who explains that the town is empty because quarreling residents keep moving further away from each other. He talks about a trip some made to Napoleon. The intelligent man shares his plan to bring back to the grey town real commodities, and thereby build community life. He wants safety in numbers for when the dusk eventually turns to night. Upon hearing this, the big man shouts at him to shut up. A fat, clean-shaven man tells Lewis that educated circles have concluded that the twilight is, in fact, a precursor to the dawn. The greyness outside begins to subside, and the light reveals distorted and faded faces. And then Lewis sees his own reflection. Dum dum dum. <laughs> That's what I was thinking when you said that last part. It's a bit of a cliffhanger. <laughs> it is. It was. That's what I was thinking. Before jumping into this episode, I just want to make a recap of one of the bigger themes in this entire book. And we're going to see it very specifically in this chapter again. And it's that idea that you can't take hell with you to heaven. You can't keep a piece of hell and still go into heaven. And it was very influenced by scholastic thought, uh, particularly Aquinas. Lewis was a big fan of that. And it's this idea that you can't have both, you know, an example of you can't have free will and fate. Here you see in this chapter specifically and throughout this book, this idea that people don't want to become better people, but yet they want to get to heaven. And guess what? You can't do that. You have to become godlike in order to get into heaven. And so that is a thing that we're going to see in this chapter and in throughout this entire book. And so we just want to re-emphasize that theme of people not willing to let go, to die to a part of themselves in order to get to heaven. When we last left him, Lewis had been in the Grey Town, which we will come to know as hell, and he got on a bus traveling towards heaven. And he was sitting next to a scruffy poet. We didn't know much about the poet before, but it's in this chapter that we find out more about him. Apparently, his life was a long list of woes. He says his parents never appreciated him. He was sent to five different schools, but he says they hadn't made a provision for a talent and temperament such as his. To make matters worse, he had been exactly the sort of boy in whose case the examination system works out with a maximum unfairness and absurdity. He was clearly having a very tough life. But when he reached university, he discovered that it had all been capitalism's fault. And he became a communist and then a conscientious objector. He moved to America, but when America entered the war, he tried to move to Sweden. But his dad had been giving him, according to him, a ludicrously inadequate allowance. And on top of this, he says he was mistreated by a girl who turned out to be a mass of bourgeois prejudices and monogamic instincts and mean about money. As a result of all of this, he jumped under a train, and on top of that, he was then sent to the Greytown. So I think we've really got to read between the lines here. 
Because what Lewis gives us is the poet's assessment of his own life. How much, Matt, do you think that what he says is really accurate? Oh, none of it. I mean, this is clearly, it was, it was almost too evident, to be honest, what Lewis was trying to say here, like too obvious. I guess Lewis was taking it to a big extreme, but a person who just blames everything on everybody else. Everybody's wronging him. Nothing is going the way he expects it to go or he thinks it should go for him. It's a huge sense of entitlement and self-absorption. Yeah, he blames his parents, but he actually reveals that his parents clearly were very caring and they tried to give him a good education and financially support him, even in later life. I enjoyed the character, and I, I know we all can think of people and in ourselves to some degree, but I've never met someone like that extreme. Uh, I can think of people who are less extreme, but I think Lewis is giving us a caricature here so that we see it very clearly. Yeah, I think that's exactly what he's doing. But the idea of somebody blaming everything on their parents or everything on economics or everything on their loved ones, I don't think that's that rare. The parent one is actually a big one. You'll see people do that all the time. And parents certainly influence us. But through the cumulative case of what Lewis is presenting us here, we're meant to see a consistent pattern in this guy's life of blaming others. And I wonder if Lewis is making a point, and he's not making it here yet, but a point throughout the book of the role of accepting responsibility. In our Christian journey, I mean, we know in real life, accepting responsibility is one of the first steps towards bettering your life. Oh, yeah. The opening words of St. John the Baptist are, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's something really good, but it begins by recognizing that you've fallen short. That's a great way of connecting that. I was trying to think how that connects to Christian life, because obviously Lewis is bringing this up for a reason. That's exactly it. You can't enter into the kingdom of God unless you're willing to repent first. And that, that requires you to stop blaming other people, stop blaming your circumstances, and to accept full responsibility. And clearly this guy can't do that. I also think we've got to read between the lines as to what he says about his girlfriend. By monogamic instincts. I wonder if Lewis is hinting that this guy cheated on her. And she, she <laughs> objected to that. I thought the same thing when I read that. I think he either cheated on her or she was just looking to settle down and build a life with this guy. And he was resistant to it. Uh-huh. And when he says that she was mean about money, did he keep sponging off her? Did he ask for a loan and then never pay it back? I'd imagine it was a sponging. Probably. But as I was reading about this, this poet, I couldn't help but think of a quotation by George Bernard Shaw. He's a playwright. He wrote Pygmalion, which was then turned into the movie My Fair Lady. He says this. This is the true joy in life. The being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. The being a force of nature, instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world did not devote itself to making you happy. You mean the world's not out to make me happy? Nope. The world doesn't care. <laughs> That's a bummer. Now, I think we have to tread carefully around the issue of the poet's suicide. Yes. I mean, firstly, clinical depression is a real thing, and it's a complex interplay of upbringing, environment, biology, brain chemistry. And I'm sure some people could read the section and think that Lewis is saying that he's sent to the Grey Town because of the suicide. But I don't think that's what Lewis is saying at all. By recounting all of the events of his life, we see that this poor boy sets himself on that trajectory much earlier. The point that I think Lewis is trying to make here is that he continually blames others for his failures. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think the, it, it, the suicide had anything to do with it. 
it, it seems to be pretty clear that it's his self-absorption, his lack of willing to repent, accept responsibility. These are all the things that are preventing him from heaven. Actually, notice, despite the suicide, he still has the same chance as everyone else on that bus. So I would argue that Lewis paints in a pretty good light there. Yeah, this is, this is the good news. He is actually traveling there. Yeah. But there's a fly in the ointment. Why is he going? Lewis tells us that he felt quite certain that he was going where, at last, his finally critical spirit would no longer be outraged by an uncongenial environment, where he would find recognition and appreciation. (laughs) Doesn't this person somewhat sound like a pseudo-intellectual today? True. We're going to meet a few of those in the course of this book. Which is interesting being Lewis in the realm of academia. Oh, sure. But just, I think in that one sentence, we see what's really holding him back. I think in that one sentence, we see his vanity. In later chapters, we're going to return to this idea of seeking adulation when we come across a famous artist. And one funny bit in this chapter, previously he had implied that he and Lewis were similar. That's why he joins him in the first place on the bus. But in this chapter... He seems to suggest that Lewis will be with the Hoi Polloi heading back to the Grey Town. Lewis writes, He assured me that all the other passengers would be with me on the return journey. Now, in the last episode, I said that I'd share something about the identity of this poet. Many scholars think it's Lewis. Like the poet, he had a hard Victorian father. He too went to five schools. And he didn't fit in there. He hated sports and cliques. It was only when he studied with his tutor, the great Nock, that he actually felt at home. Lewis also had dreams of becoming a famous poet. His father also financed him for a considerable period of his life. And when Lewis describes his young self, he describes himself as a real prig. Uh, Those listeners out there who have read the Chronicles of Narnia, Eustace Clarence Scrub, Lewis based that character on himself. But fortunately for us, Lewis didn't stay like that. There was a deviation in the trajectory which he initially shared with this poet. Using Lewis's own thing, he probably went backwards, cracked the mistake in his math problem, and got to the right answer. He went back to the fork in the road and took the right direction. Which is interesting, though, to to think that that's what Lewis is like, because we only read his works post call it conversion, and so we only see the Lewis that seems to be, at least, on the right road and never get to see the other Lewis, other than in his uh, auto, not in autobiography, but other than Surprised by Joy. Uh, you see it there. We actually do have some of his earlier works. He wrote uh, Dima and Spirits in Bondage. So you do get to see a little bit of pre-conversion Lewis, as well as all the letters that he wrote. The letter that I quoted at the start of the episode to Arthur Greaves Those two had a correspondence since they were children. It went on for 50 years. So we do get to see what that young Lewis was like. Does he seem quite different? Yeah, he's a real jerk. (laughs) No way. Very arrogant, very dismissive. Well, that's incredible then. Uh, What a story, though, of someone, how he's changed so much. You read his works and he's... This makes a lot more sense now. Well, one funny thing that you do see in Surprised by Joy is he actually speaks about how he used to keep a journal. And actually, when he converted to theism and eventually Christianity, he says that there was less introspection, that he stopped looking into himself so much. And I think that actually ties in with this entire idea and this entire book, that upon his conversion, Lewis started looking outside of himself more, both to his neighbor and ultimately to God. 
I read a lot of things that say part of the spiritual journey is turning within. Mm-hmm. It's where you hear the voice of God, when you channel out the world, when you channel out the distractions, you enter into that silence, that solitude, very Henry Nguyen or Henry Nouwen. It's where you, you can hear the voice of God call you the beloved. And so that turning within is very different than what we're talking about here. Which is self-obsession. Yes. We actually had our C.S. Lewis book club yesterday, and this issue was raised. I asked the group, why do you think Lewis says that he was less introspective upon his conversion? And a couple of theories were put forward. One of them is what we've just said, that he was now looking out to other people and to God. But one of my friends, Jerry, suggested that maybe he was horrified about what he saw when he looked inside himself. And Lewis actually alludes in his letters in a few places, particularly The Great Divorce and I think the Screwtape Letters, that the books kind of scared him. And I think it's because that when he looked into his own heart, he saw himself truly as this clod of selfishness and pride. And I think it ties back in with what he says in Mere Christianity, that the truly humble man won't think about himself. He won't be thinking about himself at all. Which is interesting because you could argue it was only by turning within that he saw the nastiness that convinced him <laughs> to, to, <laughs> that he needed to change. Because sometimes we do need that self-awareness in introspective, and then you have to identify what needs to be changed. What he learned that needs to be changed is he needs to stop looking in all the time and start mm-hmm. looking out. I think that's the key distinction, all the time. Yes. One of the great spiritual practices in the history of Christianity has been the daily examination of conscience. That at the end of the day, you recount the events, you see where God was moving, where you cooperated with his grace, but also where you rejected it, where you didn't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, where you didn't love your neighbor as yourself and seek forgiveness. But the difference is, is you're not obsessing about it. You look through the day, you give thanks to God, you repent for where you screwed up, and you move on. I think that's exactly right. There's, and for listeners and anyone who's interested, there's an incredible Christian-based uh, mobile app called Hallow, like Hallow Be Thy Name, and it has a daily examine. I love using it. It's, it's, it's incredible. It does make you—everything you said is spot on. Now, before the tousle-headed poet can read Jack some of his poetry—you'll recall from last episode he was kind of terrified about that—a uh, fight breaks out. And it's a bit weird, because— Nobody's hurt. It just shows the foolishness of fighting in the afterlife. (laughs) But Lewis finds himself with a new companion, who he describes as an intelligent-looking man with a rather bulbous nose and a bowler hat. We'll find out more about this man that he's called Ike. But here, Lewis mostly calls him the intelligent ghost. And this was a fun conversation, hearing them back and forth. There were a lot of... I want to say a lot, but there were a few really key points here that are central to this whole story that were started to begin in this conversation. Yeah, we get quite a bit of exposition. A lot of it's spelled out that we've only had to guess at thus far. And it begins with Lewis commenting, it seems a juice of a town. I looked this one up. I was just going to say, unless you're familiar with watching Family Guy, the word juice might seem unfamiliar. It was, and I thought I could either wait for David to do this or I could look it up. (laughs) Okay, Matt, tell us, what does juice mean? Like a devil of a town. Yes, it's a euphemism for devil, which is appropriate enough given the grey town was hell. It's interesting when I googled it, the first two don't actually show it and you had to expand and it was like way down. It must not be super used anymore. Listeners, we need to bring juice back. 
So please use it in your daily conversations. Anyway, Ike, the intelligent man, explains that why the town is so big. He says it's because residents are so quarrelsome. Here's how he describes it. As soon as anyone arrives, he settles in some street. Before he's been there 24 hours, he quarrels with his neighbour. Before the week's over, he's quarrelled so badly that he decides to move. Very likely, he finds the next street empty because all the people there have quarrelled with their neighbours and moved. He settles in. If by any chance the street is full, he goes on further. But even if he stays, it makes no odds. He's sure to have another quarrel pretty soon, and then he'll move again. What he's describing here is a kind of suburbia. A place where you can choose complete isolation from other people. If you doubt me, just ask yourself how many of your neighbours you know and how well you know them. Yeah, I don't know any of my neighbours actually here in New York. (laughs) Except the ones across the hall who don't know the definition of personal hygiene, unfortunately. Lovely. I know. My roommate and I have had to actually buy something from Amazon that kills odors and set it out in the hallway. (laughs) It's it's unfortunate. But what's the problem with these people? It's what we were talking about last week. St. Augustine described it as incurvatus in se. I think I'm pretty much going to say this every single episode. (laughs) They're too self-involved. They're too competitive. They don't look outwards towards their neighbor. Their sin isolates them from each other. Jean-Paul Sartre wrote a book called No Exit, where three damned souls are trapped together. And the book chronicles the hell that they make for each other. And he concludes his book with the line, L'enfer, c'est les autres. Literally, hell is other people. (laughs) Wow. Which is a truth well known to introverts at parties who just want to go home. (laughs) That is so true. I can very much relate to that. We then find out that the earlier arrivals are now astronomical distances away. He says they even begin at the civic center and even the distance to the bus stop is incredible. And what I liked is Lewis says you had these individuals, the people that were living near the bus and the people on the bus. He mentions that it took them centuries of our time to get there. And he says they've done it by gradual removals. And so this made me think of heavenly and hellish creatures. Lewis is so big on the little choices that we make that turn us more into heavenly or hellish creatures. So you see this process happening in the gray town. You have certain individuals that are are quarreling more and more, and they're making the choices that are pushing them further and further, centuries and centuries away from the bus stop. And you have these other individuals that are making the decisions that bring them closer to the bus stop. And I like how we use gradual removals. And I think that connects with, David, what you mentioned last week of you can't take parts of hell with you to heaven. You have to let it all go. We have to remove these parts from ourselves. One other point I would make is I kind of chuckled at this because I'm thinking to myself, these characters that we're reading are all the characters that are like the best of the bunch. (laughs) And so I thought that was kind of funny. These these petty, pedantic, overly pseudo-intellectual individuals that we're all kind of cringing at and laughing at are the best. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder what the rest of them are like. Uh, Yeah. I didn't interpret the gradual removals in that way. I just interpreted it as this is how the town spreads. But it does then beg the question, could they have caught the bus at the Civic Center? Is it that even in hell, there are these options to get back on the bus, even many, many miles away from where they actually landed? So I would say 
No. Like I would say that you have to be at a certain place. Like the bus just can't, isn't going all over the place. I don't think you can have this person way on the outskirts who's clearly made these gradual decisions to become a hellish type creature. I believe that like someone who has made all these decisions, murdered someone, can fall on their knees, and we do see this later in the book, and instantly, I almost think you could jump to the bus pretty quickly though. Because if you're willing to, all of a sudden you just hit this rock bottom and you say, yes, God, I want you. Like, I don't think you also have to say, now I need to start making these small decisions that are going to take me centuries and centuries to work back. I think that, I don't know if I fully agree with Lewis on that. See, that, I would say, just ties in with with my theory about there could be other bus stops. Because these moments of grace can break into somebody's life even when they're in the deepest of sin. They still actually have the opportunity at that point to begin their journey, even if they were, say, further away than someone else. I don't think Lewis meant it that way, but I like your analogy. Like, could the bus just... I I believe Lewis intentionally had it like this spot and then was meaning that these people gradually removed to get there. But I do believe, and your analogy works great too, what if the bus can meet someone and say, do you want to get on this, no matter where you're at? And then theoretically, the farther you're away, it's probably much likely you're going to say yes to it. Well, you've lived in England. Where is the best place to catch a a bus? Usually near the civic centre. The further you get out into the suburbs, there are still bus stops, but there may be not as many. Ah, that's a good point. Anyway, we find out about some of the residents of hell, which might seem really mean, but remember, Lewis is following in the tradition of Dante. And in Dante's Inferno, he actually puts bishops and priests and current popes in hell. (laughs) Uh, not, I didn't know all of these people. Uh, did you know who Tamblaine was? No. Uh, apparently he was the title character in a play by Christopher Marlowe and based on a 14th century military leader. Uh, we also have Genghis Khan, who was the founder of the Mongol Empire, and he also went on excellent adventures with Bill and Ted. Wait, what? Matt has not seen that movie. <laughs> Bill no. and Ted's most excellent adventure. It's really good. <laughs> Two high school kids, they have a magic phone box that allows them to travel through time. That sounds incredible. Right. Uh, he also puts Julius Caesar there, who is a Roman emperor. and He seems like a good guy. Well, he brought down the Republic, so I'm just maybe not. Henry V, who was an English king in the 14th, 15th century. He had a lot of bloodshed on his hands. And then we come to Napoleon. And I assumed everyone had heard of him. And he, too, actually went on time-traveling adventures with Bill and Ted. Did he really? Yep. He goes to a water slide and uh, an ice cream restaurant. When was this show aired? It was in the 80s. Oh, well, there you go. I wasn't even born yet. You should watch it. It's amazing. I wasn't even an idea yet. (laughs) (laughs) Ike tells us about two people from the Greytown who went to visit Napoleon. And apparently he had built this massive house, this mansion in the middle of nowhere. And that he was just walking around there, up and down, up and down, up and down, muttering to himself for the entire year. And this is the quotation of the week. It was Salt's fault, it was Ney's fault, it was Josephine's fault, it was the fault of the Russians, it was the fault of the English. That's what he's doing for all eternity. And I chose this as the quote of the week because this is a vivid picture about how those in hell consume themselves. Like our poet, he blames all of his failings on others. He looks outside of himself only to apportion blame. Other than that, he's incurvatus in se, a soul just bent in on himself. 
And, and the other thing I would point here, if you see these characters and all the ones that he's described, that you know, Napoleon, Genghis Khan, he paints this picture that they've chosen that life, that they've made. It goes back to that gradual process that they have made these decisions to become, to, to push themselves to the outskirt, to choose that life, to dig themselves in this, in, in Napoleon's case, like this mind trap where he's constantly blaming over and over. And he's, it says he's pacing north and south, east and west, and he just can't stop doing it. And they watched him do it for a year. Like he's just, he's chosen this life more or less. Lewis then asks Ike if the town is just going to continue spreading out indefinitely. And the intelligent man says, well, it will, but he has a plan to do something about it. He doesn't think that the problem is the quarrelsome nature of the residents, of human nature. He says that's just, that's just how humans are, and we saw it on Earth. He thinks the solution is economic. He says that because it never costs them to move or build a new house, there's no proper economic basis for any community life. So whereas the poet thought that capitalism was the problem and communism the solution, Ike thinks that capitalism is what's going to solve everything. Probably neither of them are going to solve the issue. (laughs) Probably not. He says it's scarcity that enables societies to exist, for people to be able to get on with each other. And so he's planning on going to heaven to get what he calls real commodities and come back and start a little business and have something to sell, and that would force centralization. He makes money, and he's a public benefactor. Very convenient. Oh, yes. He doesn't think that people themselves will get better, but then they can have a police force to knock some discipline into them. But as you pointed out, this probably isn't going to work, because if capitalism solved the human condition, then the Western world should be just fine. But of course, we know that the human condition can't just be fixed with economics. Just economic systems and systems that allow people to flourish are obviously important. But that doesn't get to the heart of the problem. He then furtively whispers that it's going to be night soon. And that one advantage of his plan is that it would build a community so that he'd have people around him for safety in numbers when they come. You think he's imagining dangerous creatures that are going to come out and do them some harm. The big man overhears this and threatens to beat them up if they don't shut up. Which I suppose is one way of dealing with people whispering. Now, I love that Lewis finishes with this fat, clean-shaven man. So he argues that the Greytown is not experiencing Twilight at all. We're going to later encounter him as the Episcopal Ghost. Ah, okay. And and this fat, clean-shaven man interjects and says, oh, stop there. This is all just primitive superstition. This is just a prelude to the dawn. And he argues there's absolutely no evidence that this is going to turn into night. And he specifically says there's been a revolution of opinion on that in educated circles. I think Lewis is alluding to an idea that he held in his younger days and that he later grew to really disdain. The idea of continual progress, that humanity will inevitably get better even actually when the evidence points in the opposite direction. It's a very Chesterton view, who Lewis obviously read. Chesterton always said, progress for the sake of progress, or change is not progress unless it's heading in the right direction. It's worth remembering that Lewis lived through two world wars, so he saw what progress could do. Men just got better at killing each other. And I think what Sunset would mean for the Episcopal ghost, for this fat, clean-shaven man, is like a final judgment that things don't come to an end. He just sees a future of 
continual progression. Yes, I was, I was thinking it's, it's a final judgment. But there's another interesting way I think you could look at the Episcopal ghost, because not only does he have this idea of continual progression, he criticizes Ike's plans to bring back goods from heaven. He says it's only materialism, it's retrogressive, earthbound, a hankering for matter. And we've spoken about this on this podcast before. That's Gnosticism. It's the idea of spirit good, body bad. And funnily enough, this view is going to be absolutely contradicted when we get to the end of this trip and the bus lands in a hard, substantial heaven. But we'll be getting to that in the next chapter. And I love as the chapter is coming to an end and the journey is continuing and getting closer to the destination, it says the grayness outside the windows turned from mud color to the mother of pearl then to faintest blue, then to a bright blueness that stung the eyes. The, the vividness of that, I could just picture. It's very beautiful. I mean, blue is my favorite color. And then he mentions the Lewis character lowers the windows. And I thought it was interesting that many of the other ghosts in there, stop that, like they got afraid of it. And that made me think of the, in scripture where it says, darkness is afraid of the light. And we see that because Lewis starts talking about how when the light came in, he could see almost he, he could see the ghosts were fragile, almost as if it, if too much light came in, they would break apart. And here's what he said specifically: I shrank from the faces and forms by which I was surrounded. They were all fixed faces, full not of possibilities but impossibilities. Some gaunt, some bloated, some glaring with idiotic ferocity, some drowned beyond recovery in dreams but all, in one way or another, distorted and faded. One had a feeling that they might fall to pieces at any moment if the light grew much stronger. And all of this will start to come together next week when they arrive in heaven and we discover what heaven is like. So, before we wrap up, it's time for some haikus. I wrote four, four different characters that we meet. First of all is the tousle-headed poet. I was a bright star, unrecognized in my time. Soon I shall be praised. Then the intelligent man, Ike. We fight with neighbors. Economics will save us and make us better. Napoleon. In my great mansion, alone, ranting and pacing, haunted by the past. And lastly, the fat, clean-shaven man. The guy who we're going to meet as the Episcopal ghost. No darkness will come. Educated circles know that the sun will rise. And in our last episode, I invited the listeners to write some haikus for us. And I actually put up a poll on Twitter asking, should Matt be forced to write some haikus during this season? 67% of you said, yes, it'll do him good. Only 33% said, no, stop being mean. How many people voted? I don't have that here. There's three, three people, two people no, say I, yes, I, one I, said no. I think it was... I want to say 15 people, something like that. You know, it's kind of funny. I, uh, I was two of those no votes. <laughs> <laughs> and you still failed. Excellent. I did. <laughs> and Giovanna not only voted yes, she wrote a little haiku for you, Matt. Matt needs to know how to speak in prose and poems. Let thy tongue be free. So thank you for that, Giovanna. She deserves so a slow clap for that So we all one. look forward to the week when Matt decides to write some haikus. Yeah, but you guys, just, you're all going to be developing the virtue of patience. <laughs> uh, 
And in the meantime, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pints with Jack. Subscribe to YouTube. And next week, I'm going to be interviewing Patty Callahan, discussing her book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis. But until then, further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>